This is Iris Enchanted, and you are listening to Massacast. This podcast is for folks 18 and up, so whether you are an adult or a little in an adult's body, please note that this is for adults only. Enjoy! Hi, and thanks for downloading another episode. The uh, fundraiser is going uh, very well. We crossed the 50% mark. Um, uh, I'm going to end the big push for the fundraiser uh, at the end of the year. Uh, so again, massacast.com. After the first of the year, I'll stop bugging you about it. I'm, I'm doing a ton of interviews uh, this month of December. And uh, we've got some really good stuff coming up for you in the new year. I'm really looking forward to it. <clears throat> Some new people on the show, some people who've been on in the past will be returning, um, and some new announcements. Looking forward to it. Uh, this episode, it's someone who has uh, been uh, requested many a time, and uh, she finally, uh, our schedule finally uh, matched up. Laura Antony, author of the uh, Marketplace series, amongst many, many other. We'll talk about we'll talk about her books. Uh, the, the Killer War Leather, which is a murder. Mystery, kinky comedy, I guess you'd say. Uh, you can find her stuff on lauraantony.com. Uh, so here it is, a conversation with Laura. Enjoy. You, you are one of the most common people, when I, whenever I ask people, hey, who should I interview? You, your name gets brought up a lot. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, we've been going back and forth uh, on doing this because we have s- several mutual friends. Uh, and I'm so I'm really glad we finally managed to uh to connect me too you said you when i was asking if you had a microphone you said that you you have a microphone you use for gaming right what do you what, what's your game world of warcraft world of warcraft mm-hmm. I, I i've never for some reason i've never been able to get into uh any of those mmorpgs because i just i think i don't know if it's uh uh lack of patience or something i don't know what it is because it's you're playing a long game Yes, it's it's very long, and the way I play, which is rarely, um, means that the game is already it is always ahead of wherever I am. Right. Um, sometimes to the point of wow, I missed that entire last update, <laughs> and and now I have to power level my way up five levels to see all the new stuff with my friends. Um, but other than having a way to just while away time, it used to be. Uh, one of the primary ways I um, I spent time with my daddy. Really? Yeah, because uh, she lives in Connecticut, and uh, we both have primary relationships with our own uh, partners. And between my travel schedule and her work schedule, uh, we rarely get personal time. So this was, uh, did you, uh, you guys played alongside each other? Yep. And you'd smite ogres yep. uh, together and all? Uh, was there any DS that would translate into the game? Um, not in terms of role-playing, but uh, back when you were still able to do that, I used to log on as her and rearrange her packs. <laughs> so you'd do service thing, virtual service. Exactly. That's really cool. Exactly, and I'd upgrade her armor and put enchants on it and stuff like that. And she'd log on and she'd say, wow, why is my axe glowing? <laughs> Yeah, welcome to modern age, age, I guess. Right. But you can't log in as someone else now. No, now you need um, a uh, little kind of dongle to uh, put out a random number that you have to type in when you log in. I got you. Um, yeah. But, but like, well, as your gameplay, as you're playing along, for example, if you had some really good loot or, or something popped up, uh, would you defer to your daddy to... Oh, no. <laughs> no, oh, it, it, you'd be greedy when it came to that, to that point. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Oh yeah. If it's, it's if it's a question of who gets the magical sparkle pony, oh yeah, we're competing. So okay. So it, it, even even that has its limitations, is what you're saying. Oh yeah. Sure. Don't touch my sparkle pony. Right. Uh, I have to say though, it, it has been. I found for me, gaming, at, especially uh, as of late, I, if I just need to, sh- to shut my brain off, which sounds horrible, but if I need to just not think about code. Uh, you know, or or work or something like that. I I've, I've really been enjoying game. I've been playing like Borderlands lately, Borderlands Two and some other like. She she likes Borderlands a lot, actually. Yeah, well, there you go. She has excellent taste. I'm not usually a shoot 'em up person, but it's very fun. There's a lot of humor, a lot of good comedy in the writing. So uh, she said, "Right, <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not, you're just okay. I'll take your word for it. Whatever." Well, you know what it is. I have a Mac. 
I have a Mac as well. Yep. And uh, well, Mac players on Borderland can't play with PC players. Um, well, actually, they can now. Well, I suppose if you installed the the PC shell on your no. Mac, you can. Actually, so if you the Steam version, what mm-hmm. is this? Are, are, are you listeners taking notes right now? Okay. Uh, if you install the Steam version, the Steam versions are. It used to be you couldn't play with. Uh, if you bought, I mean, if you can't, if you buy it through the Mac App Store, you can't play with the other person, right? But if you, okay. if, if she has the Steam version, and you have the Steam version, as uh, as long as those are the same on the same model or version, like two point oh one or whatever, then you can play together. Huh. I will have to look into that. The more you know. But, but but let's say usually if they have a new update, they'll release it on the PC first, and then it takes a few days for it to get to the Mac, and then you can play again. So uh, if you need help, let me know. I will. Because it's, it's actually a really fun game. I'm not, again, I'm not a shoot em, I, I don't really, usually like, you know, shoot 'em ups but this is, it's really very funny. It's very funny written. So now you don't have an excuse. I know. Yeah. I'll have to I'm, look into it. I'm sorry. I just took, I took, I just robbed you of countless hours of your life now. <laughs> I wish I had that time. Right. Um, uh, so I know. I mean, uh, my first exposure to you was uh, reading the marketplace, and or I should say the audio book. Uh, I don't want to. I, I don't want to make myself sound more intelligent than I actually am. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and I have to say, I really. This was maybe three years ago. When I not even the audio book maybe came out last year. Was it last year? Okay, then mm-hmm. I, I guess I listened to it last year. Then. Um, uh, I really this is this is something I really wish I had listened to early on or read early on in my explorations because for me I don't know if this is this was your intention or not but um my biggest difficulty when I was first starting out in kink was managing expectations and mm-hmm. and being kind of grounded in 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 what you know DS was for a lot of people right because um, the stuff I would read would be very, just very elaborate and just not realistic, right? And I'm sure there's some people who would read the marketplace and say that's not realistic at all. There's no, but uh, it's not graphic all the time, you know. It, no, it's it, it's definitely it's it's sort of. I mean, what was your when you set out to write it? What what were you thinking when you when you sat down? Because you weren't thinking I'm going to make something that's just completely steamy and and you know salacious. No, no. Um, I wrote it primarily because of the lack of SM smut that I liked to read. Mm -hmm. So basically, I I wrote the book that I wish other books had been. Yeah. Like um, uh, like most perverts uh, who it came out before the internet, um, I uh, I had limited access to to good smut um, because there was. Not a lot of good smut. Um, the story of O was mentioned by by everyone. Dangerous liaisons, maybe um, Venus and Fur, sure, Mister Benson in the in the gay world, um, and then uh, uh, Doc and Fluff was recommended to me for for lesbian kinky stuff. Although oddly enough, I found the gay scenes in that much hotter, uh, or maybe not oddly, if you get to know me. Sure. Um, but whatever I read, I found um, somewhat lacking. It, it's not as though it, they weren't good in and of itself, uh, in and of themselves. Some of them are considered, and rightly so, classics. Mister Benson is a classic, but it's only about men, and it's only about really good-looking men. I can um, re- I can relate. Yeah, and uh, and and. Um, uh, it, Exit to Eden and the Beauty Series by Anne Rice, mm-hmm. right? R- written under uh, pseudonyms. Yeah. Um, I read them and I said, wow, th- these are really hot, except the fantasy element of it was so fantastic, and I use that in the older sense of the word, meaning unbelievable, yeah. that it was hard for me to suspend disbelief and say, oh, well, sure, a human being would survive that. <laughs> I, well, you know, like being suspended from your wrists and ankles overnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, folded in half like a taco. Um, you know, in, in the morning we would have had uh, one frozen and asphyxiated beauty. Yeah. And so there were some times when I, I just, 
I would flip the pages to get to the naughty parts and then ignore the rest of the story. And I started to wonder why no one was writing stories about people doing this stuff. It was mostly loosely connected scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that mostly moved in a linear fashion, getting more and more extreme toward the end of the book or toward the end of the series. What I liked about the marketplace is that there were different times I could identify with different characters. And also, um, like I said, it wasn't this, it, it wasn't this thing that was just designed just to get me off. Um, well, there's no denying that, you know, the, the marketplace is still fantasy. Um, the, the biggest fakery is that there would be, uh, it's not the, there's a secret society of people selling slaves. The biggest fakery is that there's enough of those slaves to support the secret society. <laughs> because in, in truth, we sort of like to pick the people we fuck. It's, it's kind of a human thing. Um, and so I imagine that there are people who can get over that little yeah, I totally got over that. For yeah. me, it was it, what I mean by realistic is that if if this actually were to occur, or if it were, even if it was just sort of like a training area that someone sent mm-hmm. their slaves to, or whatever, um, that it was it was real. You actually, you know, you saw the 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 masters of the house getting frustrated and like rolling their eyes and not being, you know, Sir Domly Dom of Dom, you know, of Dom to the <laughs> and, and it was really refreshing because you didn't you didn't see that anywhere else. Well, and also that my um, my submissive and slave and service oriented characters are not, uh, you know, Simon Pure. I give up everything for you because you are a natural dom, and I'm a natural sub, and yeah. therefore everything is fine. And they laugh at the tops, and they find themselves in weird situations, and they reflect on how weird it is. And sometimes they're not happy, and I. You know, sometimes they're whiny, mm-hmm. but then so are the tops. Sure, sure. Um, so, but it's been 20 years, right? Yep, 20 yeah. years in August. And you're clearly not sick of talking about it. I mean, like, I, know, I know people who, like, who if they, ha- they had a really big hit, they, they want to talk about their current, which you have other hits, obviously. But uh, it's great that, you, you're, that people still are this passionate about it. Well, it's not the only book I wrote, um, and it's not even the only book in the series. Right. Um, and so the, the Slave is the best-selling book in the Marketplace series. Right. That's book two, and that'll be 20 years old next year. So I'll have another anniversary, and maybe I'll give away another 6,000 books. I don't know. Um, but that's what, that's what I did for the Marketplace anniversary this year. You gave away 6,000? 6,000 copies of the ebook. That's That's... Uh... I mean, that, that's incredible. What, I mean, how, how is our Kindle, I imagine? Or, or? Well, we, we made it free mm-hmm. on, on almost every website that uh, sold it. Only uh, Barnes & Noble didn't get on it. So you couldn't get it free for the Nook. Although you could get it free for the Nook from the Circlet.com website. Circlet is my publisher. Yeah. And so I would just steer people there. But um, when we totaled up the numbers of downloads and uh, from all the reports we got, it came up to about 6,000 copies. Uh, tell us about the rest of the series. I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't read the other ones. Uh, like right, because you, I'm like, an, you I, like audio books. I, well, it's not that I, I mean, I would love to have time. But for me, yep. I, always con- I, I consume everything when I'm on the, on the go, when I'm moving from place to place. So I, I'm always like chapter by chapter by chapter. I have to say that I did cheat uh, with the marketplace because uh, I was at work listening to it. So I, <laughs> I, I will say what? that. Well, I, I, well, that's your fault, though. It's because if it was something that I could pause, then you know, then I would have. But uh, because of you, productivity for that uh, those few days I was listening went way down. Whoops. Yeah. Well, if I, you know, you would have had a lawsuit on your hands had I lost my job. Yeah, I, I apologize to all your clients. Um, <laughs> what? Let's. It, since the marketplace, I believe, has actually performed well as an audio, I'm really hoping that Audible um, picks up. The Slave, because I think um, since more people uh, enjoy The Slave, uh, I think it's primarily because of the central character, uh, whose name is Robin, and um, she's a bisexual female submissive. This is a more universal POV character that um, a lot of people enjoy reading about her adventures through her eyes. 
I think that um, once that became an audiobook, I think Audible would easily pick up the rest of the series. Well, so how does that work? They they have to say yes, you you know, and they so they provide the person to read the audiobook. Yep. Oh, okay. So you yeah, they they hire the people. Okay. So basically, and you just get a you get a cut of that or whatever. You can't. Yeah, they throw me a few bucks in advance, and uh, then they hire a reader. And then they market it, and uh, then I get to report in a year or two to let me know how I'm doing. So what, what ha- is it possible for – this sounds like a good Kickstarter. Is it possible for you to get your own reader and then put it up there? I could, but the fact is is that my learning curve on producing my, my own material would be so steep right now, I don't think it would be worth the time it would take away from actually writing. I got you. And I, I mean – it, it does suck these days that I spend a significant portion of every day marketing myself. I, but that sounds like, I mean, of course, this, this is speaking from someone on the outside. Um, you're, you're very well known uh, in the community. And even, I mean, if you, if you Google kink books on Amazon, or Google kink books on Amazon, if you just Google kink books, your name is going to be one of the first ones that come up, right? Right, but people have short memories, Every day I find people, um, I contact people who've never heard of me, who never read my books, um, who thought I stopped publishing 20 years ago right. or whatever. I published a mystery this year. Yeah, um, I've heard a lot. Right? Of, I, I, in fact, it is, that's also on Audible. Yes, and yes that it is. And that is uh, the next on my list. I'm, fin- I'm finishing a biography right now. And, uh, I, well, I wish I could say I'm an excellent interviewer and I listened to the book first. I'm, I'm not that excellent interviewer. <laughs> Clearly, um, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that because it's funny, and that's one of the big things I'm I'm looking forward to. Um, so, so, like your day is not just getting up and you have your coffee, you have your general food, international coffees moment, and then you sit down, and then you crank you crank out you know 500 pages, and then you get you know then you relax at the end of the day, watch the Daily Show, and go to bed. Yeah, it's a good day if I get three to five pages out. What is the process for you? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who like cranking out their own erotica. I know. I, if I have nothing else to do, I usually spend my mornings um, uh, posting things on Facebook and Twitter so that people remember that I'm out there. Um, I try to keep the things I post to be on the average of five things that are not marketing myself and then something marketing myself. So I don't get too boring. Yeah. Um, I answer email, a lot of which is, uh, uh, you know, invitations to, to speak somewhere. Um, but I also get a significant number of personal notes from people who either want my advice or want to tell me their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I have uh, business that needs to be taken care of, whether it's tracking down sales numbers or writing to old publishers to see if I could get the rights to my own work back, um, looking to find out-of-print copies of my books at cheap prices so I can uh, have them in stock at my online store. Uh, sometimes I'll create my own advertising. Um, and then I promote my appear- appearances, whether they're at conferences or bookstores or um, doing specialty classes. And uh, then by that time, it's lunchtime. <laughs> uh, the, the emails you get from, excuse me, from fans, uh, do you get <clears throat> people who are uh, upset with you of how, how you've taken a character or wondering how something, uh, if, if maybe there's a character you left sort of hanging uh, do you get a lot of people really passionate about it? Because I know for me, if, that's why I couldn't stop listening to the marketplace because I was I had like an emotional investment in these people. Um, I, yeah, I actually wish I got more of that mail. Um, I, I, I really wish that people would write to me and say, so what happened to Robert after he was sold and, and that sort of thing? So yeah. I could either point them to later books or you know, actually tell them what's on my mind um, and, and that sort of thing. But mostly the personal notes I get about the books are nitpicks. Nitpick? Like like what? Can you give me some examples? I had this, you know, 1995 version of your book and it had so many typos in it that I couldn't read it and so therefore I, ne- I will never read anything by you again. And They went out of the way just to tell you that they're not going to read anything of yours. 
Yes. So that's kind of a dick move more than anything yes. else. And, and, and then there, there was the person who wrote to me to let me know that there was no way a character could fly across the United States from New York to L.A. and land at a particular time because there were no commercial flights that did that. <laughs> and, and I was like, seriously? Seriously, this ruined your suspension of disbelief in a book about a worldwide secret slaveholding society. Uh, and that I didn't even know what to say. Well, and the nice thing is, is you've got Columbo clearly reading your books. This is great. Yeah. I, I wrote back and said, well, clearly he just hired a chat. Yeah. You know, because money. <laughs> right. What the fuck? <laughs> well, so, so, I mean, as the author, you, do you try to look at it on the bright side of like, of like, look, they clearly were invested in this so much that they had to find this, right? I mean. These days, yes. The, these days when, when I get that, that kind of critique or, or when someone takes the time to, to, to explain just how disappointed they were in this character's arc, I, I look at it and say, well, it means I got them passionately involved in the book. Right. You mean, know? It, but it's like, uh, like if, if you're, because if you're, there were there several characters when I was listening to the first Marketplace book, there were several characters where I was just rooting for them the whole time. And uh, it, it, it was not, they were not progressing as fast as I had wanted, but it's not my, you know, it's my job to experience it. That's what, it, that was my experience, right? It's not, right. it doesn't mean you did something wrong. It means, it means I just was rooting, I was rooting for them to, to hurry up and get, you know, get better. Um, but that doesn't mean you did something wrong. That just means you actually did something right by, by, you know, invoking that emotion for me. Well, I'm certainly hoping so. And um, I've gotten way more philosophical about reactions to my writing than I used to be. And uh, I actually wish that people would, would write more about it and their problems with it or what they liked about it or what they want to see in future books because I'm flexible. I'm commercial. <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you tell me more pony play, I could do this. <laughs> you can just put in whatever is the big thing of the day. And, and then well, more planking. I want to see right? them more planking in this. Yeah. Whatever is hip at that exact moment, right? Right. I understand hacky sacks were big at this time. We're going to put more hacky sacks in this, uh, in this one. Well, what's really funny is that right now I'm, I'm writing the sixth book in the series, mm -hmm. uh, long overdue. Um, but be, uh, part of the problem in its long overdue-ness is that according to the timeline of the series, this book is taking place basically in the year 2000 and 2001. Mm -hmm. There's a lot I don't remember specifically about tech politics, entertainment, you know, what was popular in 2000? Um, what was the size of a cell phone? Were people texting back then? Yeah. How much did a flat screen TV cost? And, and, and things like that. And I find myself researching the most absurd things sometimes. <laughs> You're like, okay, what was the popular Pearl Jam song at that time? And I can't remember. Right? Uh, what is your, what, so at what point does, it, does inspiration strike you is that when you write or do you have like a, a backlog always in the back of your brain like i know exactly what, what's going to happen with this character or i know this oh i thought of this really hot scene that i want to put in and so you, you write you you take a little mental note and then you write about it later or is how does that work for you well usually i just take a mental note because my philosophy has been if it's really important if it's really good i'll remember it um but sometimes I find that little things that would have flavored it, uh, flavored what it, whatever it is I'm working on, do kind of fall by the wayside. And so increasingly now I've started to make notes on my ongoing codex, which I update as I'm writing something. So it's all the things that I come up with, all the details um, my research notes and that sort of thing. And so um, sometimes I'll come up with a fabulous idea while I'm driving. It usually comes while I'm driving. And uh, these days I've started to actually write little text notes to myself. And then I come home and, and put them in my codex and I'll remember them later. That always screws me up because I'll write it down and it makes sense at the time. Mm -hmm. And then when I read the note later, I'll be like, 
gravy boat? What the, what's gravy boat? I don't know what gravy boat is, but it seems so <laughs> self... Uh, you sound like you use Scrivener. You know, I just bought Scrivener this year. I haven't really dedicated a lot of time to figuring out how to use it. Um, I, I think my first project created entirely with it will be the sequel to The Killer War Leather. Because um, right now I have... 30 chapters of The Inheritor already in Microsoft Word, and I don't know if I want to transfer the whole thing sure. into a program I don't know yet. Yeah, if that works for you, then that works for you. No, no, Scrivener is great. Those, again, you, know, you nerds take, uh, following along, Scrivener is a Mac application. It's generally used for writing or research papers and stuff like that. I use it for interviews. I have uh, different interviews and you know, just with different people, and I have a little note for each person and whatever, and uh, it works great, but it works great for a whole bunch of different things. But you sounded, when you said Mac person, first of all, I fell a little bit in love with you when you said that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm an old-time Mac person. Um, I, uh, my original computer was a Mac Plus. So you sound like you're always got, you've always got some project going. Always. I think um, I, I used to say that I, uh, I was suffering from writer's block, which is why I had like a whole bunch of years where I wasn't producing anything but short stories. Um, but uh, now I belatedly realized uh, I was depressed. And so I didn't take on any long-term projects, mostly because I didn't see the point. Right. But then when you're depressed, you, you don't see the point of anything. Yeah. So it was far easier for me to say, oh, fine, so you want me to write 4,000 words on anal sex. Bang, 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 bang. There you go. <laughs> um, what was, do you mind if we talk about your depression? No, go ahead. So uh, how did you crack out of that? Because I, I, mean, I know a lot of people that, that are in the scene and they feel like they can't go to a therapist because uh, it, you know, they're, they're not, either they don't have a kinkware professional near where they are um, or they just don't feel like going to a therapist. Um, Better living through chemistry. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Um, Selexa broke me out of it. And uh, then uh, later on, Wellbutrin helped me uh, get out of the Selexa mode. And then slowly I weaned myself off of the Wellbutrin. And, uh, wow, it's been maybe five years now that I've been, no, longer uh, longer than five years that I've been off of antidepressants and my productivity has gone up. My day-to-day feeling of life's okay is awesome. And, uh, wow, I, I can't believe I waited so long. I tell people all the time in my classes now, I'm like, do not think your kink life is going to solve depression. Take your fucking meds, go do your therapy, and uh, and don't don't follow my bad example of waiting too long. Well, it's great that you can admit that. There's a lot of people who, number one, just can't, can't admit that to themselves or to other people, much less publicly on a podcast. Um, well, you're, you're a New Yorker. The entire city of New York was in a state of anxiety or depression in 2001. Yeah, yeah. And um, because of all the money that poured in after 9-11, uh, the city's mental health programs did amazing research. And it was one of them that got through to me. I was at a Brooklyn Cyclones game, right, out on Coney Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave out these pamphlets that had, do you feel any of these things? And I was like, oh, my God, I feel all of these things. And so, so you, you found a therapist? Yep. And was it a kinkware professional? No. Nah. I called the 800 number that was in, in the flyer. I, I said, I, I feel all these things. What do I do? And they said, come see this doctor and I rolled up it was during Rosh Hashanah of 2002 mm-hmm. and uh, and I remember I walked from Shul to the place where I had the appointment and, and I, I sat down in this woman's office and she asked me what was going on I told her all of you know, everything that happened and, and the pamphlet and I said but I didn't lose anyone personally on 9-11 and I never even made it into Manhattan that day and I don't understand why I feel this way all the time and life isn't worth living and blah 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 and I sat there and I stared at her and I, I expected her to say something like well snap out of it or you know something like that and she said you're pretty hard on yourself aren't you and I just burst into tears it was a survivor's uh, yeah. 
and 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 feeling like I should just buck up and be strong and you know I had nothing to be sad about and uh, so I saw her two more times and uh, and she was the one who uh, prescribed the uh, Celexa and I went back to my primary care physician and he said ooh go you Celexa it's awesome let me know if you have any of these side effects and uh, gradually over time I began to feel better. Uh, we should state just you know. For, for moral reasons that uh, you and I are getting a kickback from Selexa. No, for, no, 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 and uh, or any know. other <laughs> or any other name brand drugs. But they certainly worked for me. And um, and I always tell people, look, if you tried something once and it didn't work, go back to the doctor, smack him around, and say, give me something else. Yeah, a lot of people. Or, just, yeah, you're right. A lot of people just say, okay, well, right? he's the doctor. He must know, right? It's like tell them. I, I took this one, and it makes me sleep all the time. I need something different. I took this one, and it killed my sex life. Dead. Give me a different one. See what happens. The worst that happens is that you know you try a different one and you move on. But it sure worked for me, and uh, it took a couple years. I, I mean, I wish it was magic. You said some of the advice that you dole out is that uh, maybe I'm misquoting here. Don't think your kink is going to solve your depression. Yeah. Yeah, I see people all the time. It's like, you know, I have a new master. I'm going to give up taking my generic antidepressant. (laughs) (laughs) And I say to them, look, uh, are you also going to give up insulin? Right. Are you going to give up flu shots? Yeah. Right? Is master going to cure those for you? You aren't depressed because you're single or you don't have a partner, you don't have a slave. You're not depressed because of that. If you have chemical depression, it could be a million things. It could be nothing. Take your meds. Right. right, right. <laughs> or, 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 or keep going to see your psychiatrist or your therapist or whatever it is that, that makes you feel healthier and, and, and feel more uh, productive and tied into your life. Don't think that that kink is a cure-all. Well, there's a lot of people who they, they will ride off the high of, of, of being in a new relationship or, or experiencing something like that. Um, but it, but, and so they will assume, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I don't need my medication because I've actually had this conversation with a friend about a year ago. Well, the same thing. I, you know, I don't need to take my medication because everything's doing, going great, you know. Well, but unfortunately, once, once either the high, you know, dies down or the relationship ends, you're back to where you were before, right? And also, keep in mind, there are a lot of things people do to make themselves feel better, right? Think of um, cutting, okay? In the SM scene, we do cutting as, you know, bloodletting. We we do it to create endorphins. We do it to create marks and, and body modifications, that sort of thing. And we contrast that with what people do by themselves, self-cutting, Right, yeah. and and the image is some goth teenager with thirty razor blade cuts on their inner arms or or on their legs, and we say, well, that's bad. Well, I say, if cutting himself makes this teenager capable of getting up and getting through another day without killing himself, go cutter. Do whatever it is you need to take to stay alive. Now. Do I also say that we should address, why are you cutting? Are there other things you should do? Yes. And I have a dear friend, Kate Bornstein, who wrote a whole book on basically how not to kill yourself. And, and she says, anything you do to keep yourself together and keep yourself moving forward, you do. And then you find other techniques to, um, to make yourself better. And the, right, because the alternative is, is, much is dying. Yeah, yeah, it is giving up. Yeah. And um, and the idea is, we I, I don't want people to give up. I, I want them to keep trying to to get better and feel better. And I say that about um, SM play as well. It's like you know, if if what gets you through the night is you go to the dungeon and you get you know your needs met by engaging in play that ninety nine percent of people would say, oh my god, that's disgusting, that's awful, um, but it makes you happy, doesn't harm anyone else, awesome. Yeah, again, you know, it, it's, it's really hard for a lot of people to, to look the other way for some of the more out-of-the-ordinary kinks. Oh, yeah. As long as consent is there, usually, you know, it's, it, it's, you know who cares, right? Well, and, and then we, we get 
everyone loves to pile in the extreme examples, right? And they always start with amputation. It's sort of like, yes, but what if, you know, someone wants their nuts carved off? What if someone wants a finger chopped off? And I'm like, you know what? People do that. Boy, Lord, you have some different conversations. Than I, they always start with amputation. Boy, holy cow. What, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm having these conversations with people. Oh, really? Um, because I, I see it all the time when people start talking about issues of consent and where we draw the line and uh, what's permissible and, and what we don't uh, approve of. What is safe, sane, consensual? And when people start asking that question, they always come up with the most extreme examples. Yeah. And it's it's usually uh, it, death, children, animals, shit, and amputation. Yeah. I guess I, I'm, I, I probably avoid... Uh, intellectualizing kink conversations like that, uh, unless that's at a presentation. Right. And I do a lot of presentations, including one that's only on taboo fantasies. You have a huge, long, long list of, of different things uh, you, you do presentations on. And it's almost like, uh, do you just let anyone pick whenever someone's booking you? Uh, do you just let them pick or do you usually kind of nudge them a certain way because you've done this one so long, you'd like to kind of do something new or... Uh, actually, it's it's far easier to do the old ones than the new ones. The new ones, I actually have to look at my notes and stuff. Um, but uh, usually, I let them pick. The only time I, uh, I there are two times when I will insert my own opinions of of what they should pick. One is if they ask, yeah. you know, what what are your most popular um, is a common question. That, that event coordinators ask. And the other is if I think that they've picked, uh, I usually try to teach three classes over a weekend. Um, if they pick three very similar ones or, or three lightweight ones and, and, and nothing uh, more uh, complex, I might say, you know, you, you might want to add in something else. Uh, I'm just getting, do you mind if I, we do sort of like a, a bullet... Uh... Bullet points. I'm going to give you some of the presentations. You kind of give me a, a, sort of a, the gist of some. I'll of these. do my best. Because some of these are, I mean, they, they sound absolutely fascinating. And, and I would, if, if no one's seen you, if someone listening hasn't seen you give a presentation, you're really missing out. Um, uh, but I just, the titles alone. Ask me if I care. Tough love for the kinky. Okay. Here's a funny thing. No one has booked that. What? Ever. That's, that sounds, that sounds like one of the first ones I'd, I'd want to go see. Well, here's the, the thing. That uh, idea for a workshop came out of the fact that I will, um, I will generally do a reading or an open Q&A for free. All right? If, if I don't have to travel someplace, mm-hmm. if I don't have to fly and stay in a hotel or anything else, if you just want me to do a reading or sit in front of a room and have people ask me random questions, no charge. Um, but out of some of those no charge, just ask me random questions things came some of, I guess, from the hearer's perspective, from the listener's perspective, some of the most outrageous, entertaining or informative things they'd ever heard. And everyone would always say, oh, my God, you should totally do this as a class. Just open yourself up for 90 minutes of Q&A and, you know, let people ask you whatever. So I said, fine, let's do it. Crickets. Oh, really? Yep. No one has booked me for that. Uh, well, if someone does, please, can I be on like an email list, especially for this? <laughs> You're like, if someone finally asked, so what's, what's, what is your vision of what that would be? Um, I think that uh, it, the, the best way to, to do that really is, is to just, you know, throw a bunch of people in the room and tell them in advance, I will answer anything. Yeah. Anything from personal questions to creative questions to uh you know i will respond to their dear abby questions you know all the things that i usually don't do i will do if they book this class uh how about this one the revenge of of the middle-aged guard (laughs) that one um grew out of a speech where i actually said extemporaneously that I didn't know anything about the old guard because I was a member of the middle-aged guard. <laughs> and apparently this caused a lot of people to, um, you know, piss in their seats 
as they, they were laughing. And so I kind of latched, I, I belatedly latched onto the phrase after other people started quoting me. That, 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 that's a good sign when people are Right. Uh, and so I, I began to think, well, what is the middle-aged guard? And, and I said, you know, we are the ones who are caught between the reminiscences of this mythical golden age um, of the old guard of, of the leather scene and the goddamn fucking next generation and their <laughs> little don't come to our parties because we're cute uh, tactics. Um, and I'm like, well, we're in the middle. We don't go out at 11 o'clock anymore because, well, that's kind of when we're winding down and watching John Stewart and getting ready to bed. <laughs> um, and, and, and we don't care about what it used to be like in the old days because we remember the old people when we were young and they were creepy and disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one sounds, this is, sounds great. So the service-oriented submission workshop, and the, it says one for tops, one for bottoms. Yes. Well, they usually focus on just the submissives. For I'm service oriented. I've gone to a lot of different service oriented uh, workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the t- one for tops? Uh, like? the, the one for tops, I think, is far more necessary than the one for bottoms. Bottoms are are almost self-regulating when it comes to service they're waiting for someone to tell them what to do and what happens is they, they get into a relationship with the top and they're all bouncy bouncy on their toes saying yeah yeah, yeah tell me what to do like little energizer attention whore bunnies and the top sits there like they're caught in the headlights of a car on the highway and the first thing they could think of the only thing they could think of is clean my house right well, but that's sort of what it lends itself to, right? But you're mm-hmm. saying, you're, but you're saying, open it up. There's more, more that. And, and not only that, but I'm saying that uh, unless the top takes on the leadership role and sounds confident about what they want and how they want it done, and then follows through with noticing what's done and reacting to it, then they're not upholding their their end of the bargain in the relationship, and they are being a bad top. Uh. Service is a really tricky thing. It is because it's highly personal mm-hmm. and um, because often, especially uh, for a service that, uh, that touches the body or touches the home, it's, it's invasive. It re- in order to receive service, you have to become vulnerable by admitting you want something. And so, uh, and so I think a lot of tops shy away from it because if they actually said, oh, my God, you're, you know math. Can you help me with figuring out this 401k stuff? Because I don't know shit and my investments are earning 2% and I think I should be doing better than this, but I don't know who to ask. Admitting that to someone, very vulnerable. On the other hand, if I had an accountant or an investment advisor in service to me, oh my God, I'd be on that shit like white on rice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always found it fascinating well, and, and frustrating. When I, when I first moved to New York, uh, I was very interested in service and I would go to, it was actually surprisingly easy to find women who wanted me to clean for them. Mm-hmm. But, but I found that there was a big difference between someone who was not really into kink, they were just lazy Mm-hmm. And they just wanted some, you know what I mean? And they were like, eh, okay, well, just, you know. Just as I called the bottoms uh, energizer bunny attention, uh, a bunny attention horns, I usually call the tops who attend my classes lazy-ass motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm like, you're not fooling anyone. You're into service because you want your shit done. <laughs> well, I, I, I do know, I was, I've been lucky to know that there are, there are, I have met doms who are, for them, it really doesn't matter what's being done. They like the service aspect of it, right? Oh, absolutely. And so that, that, was, that was really refreshing. To, by the way, you should know that uh, over the course of conversations, I will write down possible titles for episodes. And uh, before you repeat it a second time, I wrote down Energizer Attention Whore Bunnies. <laughs> well, there you go. There you, there you go. Uh, whatever you want, the lifestyle of a pleasure slave. Yeah, a lot of people like to say, oh, well, I don't, you know, clean houses. I'm a pleasure slave. And by that, they mean I let the top fuck me. Right. In fact, go back to the marketplace. Right. Right. 
And and I was like, you know what? I'm tired of hearing this shit. Um, let's talk about what a pleasure slave should be. And and start with the concept that pleasure does not begin and end with genitalia. Mm. And and so yeah, it's it's ninety minutes about how you can mold yourself to be the most pleasing companion to someone else. Here's one that I I have found very difficult, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Creative disobedience, the art of being a wise-ass. There is a very fine line because, especially when I first started serving my now fiancé, but when I first started serving her, it was very hard for me because I would want to say something to make her laugh, but sometimes it was at, not at her detriment, but it was at her expense somewhat, right? But it was to make her laugh, right? Right. I remember very, very early on, uh, she was, she was, we were making dinner or something like that, and she was opening up like a jar of pickle, or no, it was like a, it was a package from Trader Joe's of some kind, and she says, God damn, I hate these easy open containers. <laughs> and and I, I, I was in tears laughing. Of course, she started laughing too. But this is the first time I was laugh- I ever laughed at something she had said that was sort of at her to her detriment, right? Right. Or detriment is a strong word, but at her expense. Sure. And she, because she knows she, what she said was funny, but because I was laughing, she kicked me in the nuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's funny too. <laughs> sure, right. Now, it, was, it was a very funny. I wish we, we would have had a video of this happening, but. Um, so tell me, tell me about your take on it when you talk about this, because it, it is very hard if you see, you know, if, if, especially if you have a sense of humor, it is hard to not point it out if you're on the, on the, on the bottom side of things, right? Yes. And uh, one of the things I, I do, and this was a class that was requested of me, um, because uh, I, I know this will shock you terribly, um, but in service, I am myself a bit of a wise ass. Um, hell, as a top, I'm a bit of a wise ass because, wow, in general, I'm a wise ass. Um, and that follows me wherever I go um, and whatever role I'm playing at the time. And so uh, I also built into the character of Chris Parker. Now, you've only um, encountered the marketplace, but later on in the series, several times I point out that he has um, a highly valued ability to provoke tops enough to create dramatic punishment scenarios and yet never really piss them off. Uh, because, of the, because of the elaborate way in which he's nope. presented? No? No, no. It's, it's because uh, I'm portraying him as, as a very highly skilled manipulator. Right. And... Um, and people have asked me about this over the years. How do you get that kind of reaction from a top where they're like all outraged and they get to punish you and they, they, they get to correct you and, and give you assignments and that sort of thing. But they're not actually really hurt. Yeah. They, they aren't really angry. They're enjoying the pretense of anger. And I said, well, it's really difficult because you have to. And then I realized, oh, I know what you have to do. I need to take notes on this. And so that's how the class was born. And, and so in a nutshell, it, it's highly personal. But outside of what's personal, um, the person in service or in submission has to understand that they cannot authentically hurt the feelings of the person that they're um, disobeying or, or sassing. They cannot inconvenience them. And they cannot embarrass them in front of other people. Right. And, and, and that's a, the whole class in a nutshell with tons and tons of examples and also the variations of, of how you can work the game and how to recover when it goes wrong. Well, uh, you've got a whole long list of, of classes. We could spend another hour, and I know you're, we're, we're, we're short on time, but I, there's two more things I wanted, I wanted to cover. Um, okay. Uh, one is, is the killer war leather. Yes. Um, and, you, and you're laughing already. When I, I remember when someone first told me about the killer war leather, um, I'm like, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a comedy. Uh, it's also a mystery. Um, and it's also a mockery of sorts, is it not? Yes. Yes, it is a comedy murder mystery set at a leather contest. I remember reading the, the, 
Pansexual Institute for Sexual Studies <laughs> and the American Sexual Studies or, or something like that, the American... Sexuality Society. Thank you. Sexuality Society are competing uh, nonprofits to uh, who represent the kinky community in this book. I skewer everyone equally and with glee. How did you go about... So obviously you're, you're, you're taking apart tropes that you see at these conferences, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I've also produced a leather contest. You have? Yes. 20 years ago, I produced uh, Ms. Northeast Leather. And so that, that experience clearly stuck with you enough to, to, be, able to, uh, to be able to to feed on that uh, for the book. Yep. So do you, like, tell us some, some of the characters. Do you have, like, the Mr. Domly Dom... Oh, I have everyone. I, I I have, you know, Mr. Domley Dom and I have the heterosexual couple where she's sort of bi and their bisexual female slave who doesn't get laid. Um, I have the overworked con volunteers and the uh, Star Trek, uh, Starstruck followers and the clans and the families with their own specific fetishes and every organization that has an acronym that spells something else. Yeah. And the harried producer and everything else. I, I just, I threw everyone in there. Did you, have you had any people write to you saying, this is clearly X person? Um, I, I understand that the uh, book club of the um, San Francisco Leatherman's discussion group spent about 30 minutes trying to decide who my doomed title holder character was based on. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the funny thing is, when I went to, to speak with them, uh, several of them did say, oh, it was totally based on so-and-so, wasn't he? And I said, I don't even know who you're talking about. <laughs> uh, the, the fact is, he, he's a composite, um, as are, are most of the other characters. Um, but in one case, someone actually came to me and said, so who is this character based on? And I hemmed and hawed and, and you know, tried to tap dance my way through. And then he said, oh, because I, I kind of thought he was based on me. And then I had to laugh and say, all right, he's, he was totally based on you. <laughs> You're like Carly Simon. <laughs> Am I? The, the, the song You're So Vain. Mm, mm. Nobody knows. She's actually auctioned enough. There's only like three people in the world who know who your so vain is written about, right? Right. right. Uh, and she's auctioned it off for charity. There's like, there's like literally, there's three people in the world <laughs> oh, who that's know funny. this answer, and people are always speculating. You're mm-hmm. you, you're the kink, Carly Simon. Well, it is kind of amusing that everywhere where I've read the first chapter, um, in the first chapter, you you see all the volunteers setting up for registration, and the doyen of registration is Slave Bitsy. And she is a tall brass woman of size, okay, who is immaculately dressed and coiffured. And when she looks up and screams at them in order to get them all sorted out into their lives and, and, and lines and, and tells them when to register and that sort of thing. And a character says to her, I don't know what we do without you, Bitsy. And then she snarls, that slave, Bitsy. <laughs> I can't. I cannot wait. I wish you, I, 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 like I said, I've already bought it on Audible. Uh-huh. It's on my queue list. I, I'm wishing that you had read it now. Well, I'm wishing I, I read it too, but sadly I got to Audible literally the day after they hired the woman uh-huh. who, who read it. Um, but they will keep me in mind for, for future books. But I read that, and I read the voice of Slave Bitsy, and I describe her in all of her plus-size glory. And usually, in any room... 90% of the people turn to look at one woman in the room. <laughs> and so I've been told over and over again, oh, Slave Bitsy is the president of our club, and Slave Bitsy lives here. And I'm like, well, that's because she's a type. <laughs> right. right, right. Uh, I, cannot, I cannot wait to do, – do, but did you put yourself in it? I sure did. You did? Yes, I, I put myself in there. Um, uh, my alter ego is uh, – what I imagined I would have been had I stayed in school. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Because um, uh, I, I was about an inch away from majoring in uh, sociology and anthropology. Um, and then I realized that, number one, I was broke. And number two, if I majored in those things, the only thing I could possibly do for a living after that is then turn around and teach them. I and I thought, 
And I thought, oh, wow, that'll be exciting. And then I'll be drinking too heavily. I'll be seducing, you know, girls on campus. And maybe I'll just get a job. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 when I'm listening to it, I'll be sure to make a mental note of how you depict yourself. That'll be. Yeah. Um, so one last topic before we go um, is your personal history of how you got into kink to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, before you started writing it, I'm, I'm, you, you experienced it, I imagine. Yes. Um, how, how did, what was your first experience? Or did you always sort of know you were kinky and then you experienced it? Or? I always knew I was kinky. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if we divided the, the world of kink up into the, the people who discovered it at some point in life, um, I would not be in, in that group because I always knew there was something uh, very different about me in the way that I reacted to stories and situations and the way I played as a young child um, and the stories I told myself in my mind. And when I say young, I mean really, really young, not teenager. Um, and uh, my first realization that there were uh, words and terms to go along with the, the stories I told myself was in a, uh, a book called Greek Slave Boy, which was a Caldecott award-winning uh, book about an Athenian lad who is captured by pirates and sold as a slave and later on escapes and comes home and learns that slavery is bad. And let me tell you, I bought a copy of this book. This book is meant for like... But, so that was your earliest experience? Uh, that was my earliest um, understanding that there was something wrong with me. Because even as I was reading this book and, and getting whatever we would call excited at that age uh, from reading the depictions of, uh, I mean, the kid is flogged with a flagellum at one point in this book, and the flagellum is described. I read this and realized that my reactions to the story were probably not what was intended. Yeah. And, and then later on, I became such an expert on slavery because any book that came from Scholastic that was about slaves, I got. Right. And um, then around the age of 12 or 13, I stole a copy of A Man with a Maid off a cousin's bookshelf. And that was my first experience with erotica. And when I read that, I immediately realized that if this book existed, then there were other people like me out there. I mean, that, that connection came really fast. Oh, I, I immediately started looking for more porn. I read a ton of Victorian porn um, because it was available at B. Dalton's. Uh, and then on the same shelf as A Man with a Maid and The Pearl and uh, Gardens of the Night um, and classic books like that was The Story of O. Mm -hmm. And then I believe I was still a teenager when Nine and a Half Weeks, the book, came out. So, I mean, I suppose it's fitting for you that it was uh, literary exploration first. Yes, and by the time I started uh, wondering how on earth I could meet people who actually did this, um, I was finding stories about serial killers and, and people who kidnapped people and tortured them. And so somewhere along the way, I realized one day I would go out and I would look for people I could do this stuff with, and eventually one of them would kill me. Yeah. And, so and uh, you know, that, that wasn't very happy. For a while, yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know what? It, it didn't really stop me. And, and the things that I did, I mean, I used to take the train into Manhattan and go buy porn on 42nd Street. And I, I must, every time I remember this, I have to wonder what went through the minds of the clerks. Is this fat kid from Queens with her thick glasses, you know, coming in and buying gangbang captive bride or, you know, trucker boys in bondage? What the hell they thought? Trucker boys in bondage? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and the, the 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 truckers who would keep them in bondage and fuck them uh would like get into bare knuckle fights on the side of the road in order to see who got to take the boy. Of course. Yeah. Whatever. I was an equal opportunity pervert, so I, I bought it all. So uh, how did how did your first how did you find people? Did you did you go into the scene? Was it a test meeting? How no, did you the, the, the back page of the Village Voice where tests advertised every week 
for 30 years. Uh, it was like, you know, sadist, masochist, come to our meeting. And so um, I tried to, but I was too young. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the back pages of some other sleazy paper were ads for uh, the Hellfire Club. So I went there, and I was too young, and they threw me out. And so I did what the other uh, suggestion was in the back pages of the sleazy papers, and I called phone sex lines. Uh, so you were, you were close to 18, right? Yep. yep. But they still kicked you out of tests? Yes, what, because uh, you looked younger than 18, or what was yeah, it? Because I looked younger. Yeah. Yeah. I went back eventually, but um, I got my first experiences really, literally anonymously with people on phone sex lines. And then, of course, you know, being a good decision maker at 18 and 19 would meet these people. Did that uh-huh. come to back to bite you at all? Nah. Nah. <laughs> well, a, a, couple, a couple of episodes of, of potentially unsafe sex... Um, but, uh, but mostly I met, uh, people who other people had met. Um, and, uh, most of the people I met were actually really easy to negotiate with, even for someone who didn't know how to negotiate. Right. The so, to, uh, Lolita Wolf's, uh, early. that's where Lolita and I met. Oh, really? Yep. Well, they yep, we both bought them to the same guy off the same phone sex line. <laughs> what a small world. Isn't it, though? And you both told a similar story on the Massacast. And uh, so you eventually went, you went to TAS, and then you, that's, uh, and then you started going to events. Is, is that sort uh-huh. of how it evolved? Uh, TAS and LSM, um, the kinky bisexual discussion group that used to meet on Sundays at the Gay Community Center. Uh, and then uh, some of the dykes I, I met were like, wow, you know, you're totally a dyke. Why are you hanging out with men? And I was like, I am? Oh, Yeah. Of course I am. This makes so much sense. (laughs) (laughs) This was was, uh, a realization to you? You know what? It was the SM that was important to me. And so, yeah, uh, sure. And it was easier for me to get play from guys than it was from girls. So when you had that epiphany. Then I went out and found the most crazy dykes I could possibly hang out with and they were all in the pacific northwest um and so i started going to events out there like it would let me see the third or fourth living in leather i went to may days which was in portland may days was in seattle oh may days was in seattle something else was in portland and power search and uh, eventually power search the the lesbian sm conference and uh, then i started traveling all over the united states going to contests and conferences and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I was actually out in the scene for about 10 years before my first book was published. And what, what was the genesis of you saying, you know, I should write this down? Um, no, I, I saw an ad in this. Well, the same Utopia Guardian was like, um, uh, how would you describe it? Popular mechanics for kinky people. Okay. It, it had no sexy stories, no, you know, centerfold layouts or anything. It was all how to build your own equipment, how to make your own toys, um, how to do things safely, piercing, that sort of stuff. And uh, I was a subscriber. And uh, one issue I got said that uh, they'd just gotten a whole box full of these sleazy books, including a title like Lust of the Cossacks and that sort of thing, from a brand-new publisher called Masquerade. And they were looking for authors who knew how to write formula fiction. And at the time, I was working for the People with AIDS Coalition, and uh, I was uh, laying out their, uh, their magazines, uh, their publications. I was an activist in the AIDS community, and I was already writing little vignettes to eroticize safe sex for men. And I said, well, I can write formula fiction. I was a former English major. Maybe this company will hire me. And so I wrote a nice cover letter and told them what my CV was and, you know, asked what their guidelines were. And like two days later, I got a call from the publisher himself, Richard Kasak. And his first words to me were, are you a real girl? <laughs> And when I, when I said yes, he invited me to lunch, and at the end of the day with him, I had a contract for my first book. Because in his mind, it's so much better if we have a real female writing this? Well, he was inundated by manuscripts about dominant women and, uh, and lesbians written by 
heterosexual men who clearly didn't have a good grasp on female sexuality. Right. <laughs> right. And and so he he thought I would be a better bet, and uh, and for him I certainly turned out to be because for him, the marketplace books broke into Barnes and Noble. Wow! And that turned his business around, and he probably made millions off me. I really hope you're willing to come back and, and talk more on the show. Anytime, uh, because uh, you know I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna pause I'm gonna stop in the middle of the biography. I'm, even though it's a good biography, I'm in the middle of listening to. I'm going to start the uh, killer wears uh, leather, more leather tonight, uh, and go from there. Because you're you're already writing a sequel. Yep. Okay. Yep. I just signed a contract for it a couple weeks ago. It's going to be called Menage a Murder, <laughs> and uh, I am going to kill off um, the writer of a notorious erotic trilogy. Oh wow! I can't wait for that alone. That's going to yeah. be good. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank your thank your fact checker in the background there. It's, uh, yes, that would be my my, my wife Karen. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Karen. Um, and I really and I look forward to having you back on again. Thank you so much for hosting me. Again, you can find Laura at her website lauraantonu.com. All of her stuff's on Amazon. I highly recommend the Killer War Leather. Uh, I listened to the audiobook. It's very very good. It's very funny. All of her details are on the website, massacast.com, where you can also donate. We'll talk to you later. Hope you have a good one. Bye-bye.